Welcome to the Coventry Vineyard Podcast. Wherever and whenever you're listening, we hope you're blessed by this message. If you want to find out more about our church or speak with someone about Jesus, head to coventryvineyard.org. Uh, yeah, good morning, uh, everybody. I'm Serena, and uh, we were joking earlier that the banners can, should say, not the youth pastor, but apparently I've even been like kicked off the banner now. So I, like, <laughs> my days, uh, anyway, I work for a Christian charity uh, that aims to reach young people Uh, wherever they are, and to love and disciple them. And I want to just take a minute before we get started to thank everybody that's prayed and encouraged me during this transition. I'm two weeks into my role now, and uh, I still mostly feel like a spider on roller skates, but um, I'm getting there. And so uh, to start off this morning, uh, I'm going to tell two quick little 10-year-old Serena stories. Uh, Back in the day when I looked like this, and... um, my mom's like life ambition was to make my hair not not poker straight and not um, really fine. I felt like a shrubbery most of the time. She'd like cut it off so it would grow again. But uh, and then I used to hug columns for fun. I really whatever. It was the it was the early nineties. So uh, so these two stories. We were um, my family and I were at a friend's house for a um, family gathering, and um, there were probably like twenty or thirty people there. Uh, lots of people that I knew a house I was very familiar with. And um, I was sat in the kitchen, and the buffet table was in the dining room. So it was a major error on my part. I was sat in the kitchen. And um, I had to walk down this corridor uh, along a sort of little bit, and then almost back on myself in a horseshoe to get to the buffet, and I was quite hungry. And um, I walked into the dining room from the kitchen, and it felt like every eye in the room turned to stare at me. Like, I can still remember it. A sea of unfamiliar faces staring at this little 10-year-old with really bad hair. And um, I felt so awkward that I dropped my plate. It smashed into 55 million pieces. I turned straight around, walked back out, and hid in the kitchen for the rest of the afternoon. I honestly don't think I've ever felt so self-conscious in my life. It was quite um, quite traumatic, actually. And um, later that same year, I went on a Christian holiday with a friend of mine, which uh, life has come full circle. I now work for that charity. And um, my family weren't really following Jesus at this point. My mom had a faith for sure, but the rest of my family weren't. And um, it was a little bit of a new experience, a week of church when you've, you're not really used to it. And um, I went along with a friend whose parents had encouraged me to go. It was great. Uh, I remember singing one song, and these are the words of the song uh, that came up. So uh, it's called You Are My Hiding Place, and um, you always fill my heart with songs of deliverance. Whenever, Whenever I am afraid, I will trust in you. I will trust in you. Let the weak say I am strong in the strength of my God. I will trust in you. And um, I'm not quite sure what 10-year-old Serena thought songs of deliverance were, except maybe the A-Team theme song. That was like my top, would have been in my top three things when I was that age. The A-Team, Blue Peter and uh, Enid Blyton. So there you go. These words are taken directly from the Psalms and from 2 Corinthians, and they stuck with me. And uh, 
most of you will know this about me. I love memorizing things. Such a weirdo. And um, the simple melody to that song, I decided to memorize it. And over the next year, our family went through some really difficult things. And I can remember singing that song during that period, like as a small child. And um, later on, I'm going to talk about the impact of that song in my life almost 25 years later. So a uh, little heads up, Claire. So you're ready. Don't start your next row. We're going to dive into the Bible reading right now. So if you are able, will you please stand for the reading of the scripture? Uh, it's the story of Jesus anointing at Bethany from Matthew 26. While Jesus was in Bethany in the home of Simon the leper, a woman came to him with an alabaster jar of very expensive perfume, which she poured on his head as he was reclining at the table. When the disciples saw this, they were indignant. Why this waste, they asked. This perfume could have been sold at a high price and the money given to the poor. Aware of this, Jesus said to them, why are you bothering this woman? She has done a beautiful thing to me. The poor you will always have with you, but you will not always have me. When she poured this perfume on my body, she did it to prepare me for burial. Truly, I tell you, wherever this gospel is preached throughout the world, what she has done will also be told in memory of her. You can all sit down. Now, this story may be very familiar to us. We may have heard it before. Uh, it may be completely new. And we have this uh, beautiful anointing of Jesus. And once again, and I seem to have picked up on this, an interaction with the disciples that really helps us. Commentators have jumped to all kinds of conclusions about what's happening here. And it was really interesting to try and pull together a story and see what God was saying. But I'm going to invite us, as is my way, onto a slightly different journey this morning. It's already slightly different because we're going to finish with our sung worship. Um, and then as we respond, this is one of the final encounters with Jesus in the Gospels. So the title of my talk this morning is The Hallmarks of Worship. So let me start by saying that there are lots of examples of worship throughout the Old and New Testament, and very few of them revolve around singing. In the modern church, we have equated singing in church with worship. We've made them one and the same. And in all honesty, I think we miss out massively when we take this mindset. I think song worship is amazing. I love it. Uh, but how we approach our work, our play, and to be honest, every area of our lives shows as much about our devotion to God as our Sunday morning sung worship. I don't believe and I don't see in the Bible that they're mutually exclusive. I actually think they are like an ecosystem, like an, a thing that God designed for us to express our love in various ways. The more able we are to surrender in worship and encounter his presence, and his radical love, the better prepared we are for the week of service to Jesus in our workplace, which better prepares us to encounter and surrender to him on a Sunday, which better prepares us to serve him on Monday. We are foolish, and I count myself in this number, if we try and com compartmentalize our work and our worship. They are one and the same and feed each other. They... Um, I'm a bit of a word nerd, some of you might know that, but um, work and worship actually have the same root in Hebrew, 
And I find that really fascinating. It's, I'm sure I'm not saying this correctly, and someone will, will correct me, I'm sure. Uh, avoda or avodar means work, worship, and service. And the full definition of this word is a seamless life of work, worship, and service. And um, I've just reread this book. Um, don't need that. Good job, too, because they're all in the wrong order now. Yeah, so I've just reread this book, and it's about a French man from hundreds of years ago uh, called Brother Lawrence, and he was a kitchen servant in a monastery, and he determined to live every minute of his life in the presence of God. And people used to come and watch him wash dishes and chop vegetables and because he was so seamless in his work and his worship and the presence of God was so evident. So would anybody like this book? Who would like it? I'm, Gamania, it is yours. There you go. Enjoy it. It's one of my favorite books. I actually have another copy at home. So <laughs> there you go. So this idea that work and worship are an ecosystem. They rely on each other. They go together. Fully known, fully loved. That's beautiful, isn't it? So where do I trip up in this story? Where's the tension? Because that just sounds lovely, doesn't it? Our work and our worship go together. Woohoo! Uh, I want to say, and my honest confession is, again, a large part of me agrees with the disciples. The ones up here who said, this perfume could have been sold at a high price and the money given to the poor. Sounds like a really good Christian-loving, justice-loving response, doesn't it? It fulfills Jesus' mandate that he started, he started his ministry with. The Spirit of the Lord is upon me to bring good news to the poor. The majority of the time when I read this story, there's a voice inside my head that says, the good that could be done with that expensive perfume is a year worth of salary for a well-paid person. This is a measured, the number of biosand filters we could buy, the, the number of CAT clients we could help, the expansion of the youth ministry would be amazing. This is a measured, sensible response, and it makes complete sense to us, doesn't it? Yes. Perfect biblical British sense. But love doesn't make sense. There's nothing reasonable about someone in love. Who would sacrifice a year of their salary for a gift? Someone in love. This alabaster jar, this perfume, is said to have been this woman's dowry. And, and in that culture at that time, that meant it was her hope for the future. And who would sacrifice that? Someone in love. This woman also had a past, a history that involved sexual, sexual exploitation resulting in prostitution. I just said sex twice in church. This perfume would have been the hallmark of her trade. Who would, have, who would risk exposure and embarrassment at the hands of judgmental people? Someone in love. A few years ago, I had a TED talk uh, on YouTube, and I looked to find it, and I'm, but I couldn't find it. But a psychologist who did a brain scan on people who claimed to be in love. And the results were incredible. The exact same areas lit up in all the people that claimed that uh, and they, the uh, pleasure centers that lit up were these, the pleasure reward center, the calculated risk center, and the deep attachment center. So understanding, as I said earlier, that there's this ecosystem, this connection between work and worship, I want to stop and think for a minute about your work. 
what you're going to be up to this time tomorrow. So just think about what you're going to be doing this time tomorrow. It's almost 11 o'clock. So you, apart from being almost ready for lunch. <laughs> uh, so, and then ask yourself this question. Are the hallmarks of your attitude to work your deep pleasure, your willingness to risk embarrassment of rejection serving God in the workplace? Is there a deep sense of connection to your colleagues, the ones who you serve? So just think about that for a second. So you've got an idea for that. And so then the next question is, think about your sung worship. Your first love for Jesus, is it measured, reasonable, and sensible? If I'm honest, I would say no to the question about work and yes to the question about worship. And I just got zero out of two on a test that I wrote myself. (laughs) Yes, winning. So when I read that story about Mary, I realized that she must have been crazy in love. Crazy or in love. And as I went through my study, I realized that she was both. And they're the same thing. So how can we, as people who are reasonable, become reckless worshipers and passionate, servant-hearted workers at the same time, understanding that they are one and the same thing? Clearly, I just can't tell you uh, to fall in love. (laughs) But I think there are four things contained in this story that will help us to get to that seamless relationship between work and worship. So the first thing is, that Mary's gift was remarkably humble. Uh, When a guest entered the home in the biblical times, usually the guest's feet were washed by a slave or a lowly paid servant. And the guest's head was just anointed with a little dab of oil or perfume. And here, Mary used this precious ointment and anointed the feet of Jesus. She considered her precious ointment only good enough for his feet. One of the commentators that I read said this. To attend to the feet of the most lowly to attend to the feet was the task of the most lowly slave. Thus, Mary's action denoted great humility as well as great great devotion. And humility comes when we recognize our God in every moment. So much so that we are willing to sacrifice the most precious thing that we have to worship and anoint him. So the second thing is, so the first thing is that it was remarkably humble. And uh, the second thing is that it was remarkably extreme. She used a lot, a pound of very costly oil. Um, Spices and ointments were often used as an investment because they were small, portable, and could be easily sold. Uh, The disciples believed that this oil was worth 300 denarii. That's what they call it in John 12, 5 which was a year's worth of wages uh, for a working man. So it's an extreme gift. And that only comes from an extreme humility, like these build on and are connected to each other. If she thought she was any better than she was, she wouldn't have been so extreme in her worship. And um, as I was going through my study, I I went on this little journey and it was... uh, one of the words that they used was unselfconscious. And I just don't like to define things by what they're not. Um, and so I was like, okay, God, what, what, if it wasn't, it's not self-conscious, what was it? This gift was remarkably self-assured. This may seem 
completely contrasting to the idea of extreme humility, but actually they rely on each other. That 10-year-old would probably have looked, the 10-year-old Serena walking into the room was incredibly self-conscious. And, and in, because of that, humiliated instead of showing humility. I didn't believe I belonged there. I didn't believe that I had a place, even though I'd been invited. Um, as soon as I saw an unfamiliar eye on me. So Mary, this woman, knew who she was. And not only did she give the gift of the expensive oil, she also wiped his feet away with her hair. And uh, this means that she let her hair down in public, something a Jewish woman would rarely do. There is a unique in humility in someone who is confident enough to defy convention, to walk into a room where she knew she didn't belong. And ultimately, we become like what we worship. Instead of, so if we define our worship by our duty, instead of by our soaring vision of this man, assured of who he is and what he has called us to do, and like that little girl, that little 10-year-old Serena who ran from the room afraid of people looking at her, we can become people whose worship is known by its assurance. It's assurance of who we are worshiping and who he has created us to be. Reckless worship doesn't grovel at the door or hide in the kitchen, but assuredly honors the man whose presence we are in, assured and aware and completely humbled by our welcome and his love. Fully known, fully loved. A worshiper that walks as confidently into a hostile meeting tomorrow morning, and I know there's probably some of you who've got that, knowing they are there to serve God as they do as they, as they go through the meeting, and they feel a genuine love for the co-worker who they are working with, who they are sharing grief with, or who, whatever they are going through. A worshipper that appears extremely hum- humbled as a grown man weeps at the beauty of creation and the wonderful creator who made all of it. The final thing I want to say is something I had never heard before, <laughs> and I'm not sure why, because as I was reading, everywhere in the commentaries, it's, it was written, and um, I want to say this, uh, the fragrance lingers, that's the wrong slide, just, so just go on, that's fine. Um, yeah, the fragrance lingers. So this event in my Bible took place about three columns before the crucifixion, so we're getting there. The perfume would have been massaged, rubbed deep into Jesus' feet and and legs and then lavishly wiped over his head. So there's every reason to believe, and the commentators agree with me, that at the moment in the garden when Jesus was praying for us, he would have been aware of the scent of that perfume in that that next part of the story when Jesus goes and prays uh, for us in the garden. And at the moment of crucifixion, that moment of it is finished, that darkest hour of extreme mental and physical torture, that smell of the perfume would have been present to Jesus. And and probably as a result of that to the soldiers that were torturing him as well. They would have been aware of the fragrance of the perfume, which almost certainly contained myrrh and frankincense, which we've heard about earlier in the, in the biblical story. The fragrance of worship 
lingers. So um, I want to just take you back to that second story of 10-year-old Serena, the one that memorized the, the lyrics of You Are My Hiding Place. Um, and uh, you always fill my heart with songs of deliverance. Whenever I am afraid, I will trust in you. Let the weak, I will trust in you. Let the weak say, I am strong in the strength of my God. I will trust in you. 30 years later, I'm that old. I can say things like 30 years later. <laughs> uh, I was at pretty much the lowest point in my life. Um, I was physically lying on the floor of my little house, and I was crying. So much had gone wrong. Close, um, yeah, career-alterating decisions, broken relationships, just oh, everything, all within the space of about two days. And um, I wasn't sure what the next few days held. I really didn't. But what I did know was that I was very weak and very scared. And in the midst of that dark moment, I was crying, praying. I was all by myself. It was raining, which I felt was really unfair. Or maybe, it was like, I can't believe it's this. I'm going through all this awful stuff, and it isn't sunny. <laughs> it's terrible. Um, I was reminded of this simple song. Uh, and I just I began to sing it. And although inside my head I sound exactly like Naomi Rain, I'm sure I didn't sound like that to, to anyone that was listening or, or could hear. Um, I, I began to sing it, just me and Jesus. Whenever I am afraid, I will trust in you. Whenever I am afraid, I will trust in you. It was a long time before I could believe that I was strong enough to stand up from the floor in the strength of my God, let alone declare that I was strong. But after about three hours of sobbing and crying, my heart was aware that songs of deliverance were being sung over me. And deliverance means to transport safely to destination. I knew because I had learned it as a 10-year-old and now as a, an adult, this phrase had become an ice pick to climb me, to, for me to climb out of the mountain, a weapon, well, climb out of the valley, a weapon to get me through this dark period. Your worship today and maybe some of you are in that point today where you just can't see the next step in front of you. You can't, you can't hear the songs of deliverance being sung over you. But I want to assure you that the worship today will be a tool in your hand the next time or even this time that you are afraid. So let's review for a minute uh, as we come into land this morning. Work and worship are a seamless connection of one another. They rely and feed each other. The hallmarks of our worship is that they are remarkably humble, remarkably generous, and extremely self-assured of who Jesus is and who he has created us to be. And our worship lingers with us in our darkest moments. The same way that fragrance, that perfume lingered with Jesus. So we're coming into land now, and I just want to finish. I'm going to have a couple of minutes to um, finish with this question to discuss and, and maybe to think about as we go into this week. How can we approach our work and our worship differently so they're more similar to the events in this story? Thanks for tuning in today. 
We would love to connect with you on a Sunday morning soon. Bless you and have a great week.